Okay. Yes, because we're, we're moving on to Mark and of course Church doing a whole series on Mark and the Lent Talks are all on Mark and so we're shifting on to Mark and I suggested that I do a introduction to Mark um, so it will be useful to have our Bibles to hand in a little while um, we have this rather strange uh, introductory painting here of uh, the winged lion with a halo. Obviously the lion is a saint uh, holding a book and does anyone recognise the buildings in the background? Venice. Venice. Uh, what's the connection between Mark and Venice and the building in the background? Marks. Indeed. So, Mark Square. Yeah, so Mark Square, St Mark's in Venice. It's reputed to be, I don't know quite how much there is in this, but it's reputed to be where St Mark uh, is laid to rest. Why the winged lion? The winged lion is the symbol of St Mark the Evangelist, and there's the winged lion from the um, Book of Kells. Uh, which has a famous uh, page illustrating all four of the symbols of the, the four evangelists. Um, the symbols said to come from St Mark's description of John the Baptist's voice crying out in the wilderness, like a lion roaring in the wilderness. Uh, his voice is there, you know, make straight the paths for the Lord, etc. Uh, the lion symbolism also appears in a vision of the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1. 10 and also in the prophetic visions contained in Revelation 4 7 so there's sort of Old and New Testament prophetic imagery uh, picked up and applied to Mark's Gospel um, Revelation is one of the four living creatures around the throne of the Almighty uh, so Matthew is depicted as a human, Mark as a lion, Luke as a bull, and John as an eagle. Those are the four traditional symbols. And then the Lion of St Mark is also the symbol of the city of Venice, where tradition says that he is buried in the Basilica of St Mark in St Mark's Square. Hence the Venice connection at the beginning. So this is quite a nice little informatic of the structure of Mark's Gospel. Um, I've put down at the bottom there another way some people uh, divide it up, but uh, this way I think is quite nice. And you start off, and I've put the quotations in from the Gospel. It opens uh, from Mark talking about the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they have the introduction. Uh, and then at 1.15, you have a quote from Jesus. Um, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That's the sort of beginning of Jesus preaching the kingdom of God is, is nigh. Uh, and then there's a turning point in the middle of the gospel with a quotation, significant quotation from Peter, where uh, Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So we started with Mark saying the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus starts, starts his preaching ministry about the kingdom of God. And then 
in the middle we get this focus upon not only what is he pronouncing but who is this person who is doing this announcing the kingdom of God um, he is the Messiah uh, and then uh, after uh, at the, the, the crucifixion there's a significant quote from the, the centurion who's at the crucifixion uh, who says surely this man was the son of God so you see it picks up from the, be the beginning of the good news, the good news about the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then you've got Jesus announcing the kingdom, Peter saying of the Messiah, and the centurion saying Son of God. So that opening verse uh, is then picked out by these three significant quotations um, from Jesus, Peter, and the centurion as you go through the structure. Um, other people have talked about it having four sections of an introduction, a time of, of, uh, of ministry and, and increase and sort of popularity, a section from 8 to 10 about discipleship, and there's a lot in Mark's Gospel about that's really about what is it to be a true disciple and what are the characteristics of the disciple about childlikeness, humbleness, um, and then you get the passion story, um, which is reputed to be, by many scholars, evidently um, a very early source. Um, it's generally thought that Mark, and um, we'll see a little bit more about this later, but that Mark is cobbling together preaching stories from Peter. But he then marries those preaching stories from Peter with uh, an early... Uh, account of the Passion, the earliest account of the Passion that probably predates the writing of the Gospel itself that he gets from the Jerusalem church. You suddenly get, you'll notice if you read through Mark that it, it's it's very wham wham wham, short, pithy, sort of fast editing in modern film terms and then you get to the Passion account and suddenly you're into long take. You're into one long take. You get a continuous narrative that goes on for a long time. Um, whereas before that it's all there. And then this happened, and then that, and then immediately this, and then immediately that. And it's just little sort of snapshots of significant <coughs> things. And then you get this long uh, passion story. Yeah. Okay. Now, <coughs> I'm sure I've mentioned this before in, in other things that I've done here, but the generally thought through there are people who disagree with and have different schemas but this is the most popular schema of the re literary relationship between the gospels and their sources so you've got um, Mark, Matthew and Luke the three synoptic gospels and then John is the non-synoptic gospel uh, basically because John is clearly not copying from material from Mark, Matthew and Luke, whereas Matthew and Luke are clearly copying a heck of a lot of material from Mark. An awful lot of Mark's Gospel is basically in Matthew and Luke's Gospel. Um, the arrow indicate direction of, of borrowing, uh, and Mark is thought to be the earliest Gospel, and then it's, there's material that you'll notice between Matthew and Luke, which is common to both Matthew and Luke, which is said to go back to a source or sources, German Kell, 
hence the Q, which are early material that they're also drawing on parallel to, to Mark. And then both Matthew and Luke have their own sort of unique source or sources that the other Gospels don't have. Um, so, for example, I, you know, Luke's Gospel seems to draw upon material from Mary, um, whereas Matthew's doesn't. So they have different perspectives on the, the birth accounts, for example. Uh, but within that so-called fourth source theory that puts Mark as one of the uh, very significant in the relationship between the Gospels because it's kind of the foundation stone of the, the other two synoptic Gospels and there's a bit of a dizzying informatic here that shows the, the percentage of material shared by the sources in the, in the different Gospels so it's like they, there's if you look at the tradition that, that Mark, Luke and Matthew all have in common, it's like about 76% of Mark forms 41% of Luke and 45% of Matthew's Gospels. And, and so on. But, uh, it's a bit, bit head-scratchy, that one. So, talking about Mark and St Mark's Basilica and so on, the authorship isn't actually all that questioned of all the, the Gospel authorships. People are fairly happy with Mark, it seems. Um, New Testament scholar Paul, Timothy Paul Jones is rather putting this carefully, but he says there's no compelling reason to reject the ancient oral traditions that connect the New Testament Gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Because of course they don't have the names written on them. They're all, strictly speaking, anonymous within the text. Um, people didn't write their names on things back then. You had the scroll and you tied on a little tag to the scroll and the tag had like the title and the author on it. So it's not part of the, of the scroll that ends up being copied. So when you end up then transferring that to codexes you, you know people will transfer what was on the little tag uh, but you can't check that but all of the the early church fathers etc all of the information that we have all of the uh, manuscript evidence that we have there's no competing traditions uh, so Jones says, you know, given the evidence that's available, you can't be certain who wrote the book. Still, the best evidence that we possess suggests that they were the tax collector Matthew, Simon Peter's translator Mark, etc. And people have often pointed out that if you look at the, um, the sort of second, third century so-called Gnostic Gospels, like the so-called Gospel of Peter, um, they are generally attributed to big important people in order to make your text look good whereas if you were just making up your gospel like those those later uh, extra biblical gospels uh, why would you attribute your gospel to a traitorous tax collector like Matthew rather than saying oh it it was it was St Peter it was James. Um, 
why say that it's Mark, who's a very minor character within the New Testament, uh, rather than Peter, particularly since we think from the Church Fathers that Mark is basically acting as, as Peter's translator, because he writes better Greek than Peter does, and he's helping him out in, in, in the Roman Church and so on. It's actually Mark. Are the early texts in Greek? Yeah. So it's and it's not in, in Aramaic or not in Aramaic. Hebrew or whatever. Um, one of the early church fathers says that Matthew, I think it's Matthew, um, collected the sayings of Jesus in Aramaic. But all of the earliest copies of Matthew that we have are in Greek. But there is a theory that some scholars have, that I think is quite interesting, that that Q source was a collection of sayings of Jesus originally written in Aramaic that was written by Matthew, um, who as a tax collector would have been trained in shorthand for business purposes. And it was traditional to for disciples or rabbis to keep notes of the rabbi's teachings. And the Q material is all teaching material, it's not like the passion story stuff and so on. So that would mean that Matthew did write stuff in Aramaic, maybe, but then incorporated that later or someone else incorporated that later into the gospel that's become named after him. Whether he wrote it or because it's mainly, you know, he's the the other main source of material for it. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, all of the, the Gospels are written in, in sort of um, street Greek. Um, uh, yeah, so the fact that they don't call it Peter's Gospel, even though there's this early church tradition that Peter is the main sort of source of authority behind it, saying, yes, you know, you can publish this, this is good stuff. Um, the fact that they actually keep to saying, you know, it was, it's Mark who wrote it. Um, it's a pretty good indication that probably it was Mark that wrote it because you wouldn't make that up if you were making stuff up. Um, and J.P. Holding notes that Mark and, and Luke acts are, under Luke are usually granted their assigned authorship. It, it's it's Matthew and John that's more questioned by those who question these things. Uh, not a very good photo, but this is evidently a photo. There is a church in Jerusalem so say in the house that belonged to John Mark's mother which is the house that um, St Peter goes to with the church all praying for him when he's in prison and the angel comes and lets him out of prison and he goes to the house of, of John Mark um, so this is where we start looking up some bible verses that mention John Mark and so on so if someone could look up Acts 12 12 to 13, and you'll see some other verses are here, Colossians 4, 10, Acts 12, 25, 13, 5, 15, 39, 1 Peter 5, 13, Mark 14, 51-ish, uh, but we'll start with Acts 12, 12 to 13. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying. 
Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. There we go. So, um... The early church were meeting in his mum's house. The fact that there's no father mentioned is interesting. Probably indicates that he's he's dead. The mum has inherited the the estate. Seems that she's fairly rich because she has a servant girl. It's not it's not his mum that opens the door. It's the servant girl that opens the door. And she's got a large house because the the church lots of people can gather there to pray for Peter, so she's probably fairly well to do. Her husband has passed on. Uh, Mark at this stage would be a young lad. That's where Peter goes to. And uh, he, he then leaves uh, for another place, uh, which um, I think my theory is that that is Rome, he goes to Rome. And I reckon that Mark quite plausibly goes with Peter to Rome at that stage. But moving on to Colossians 4.10. Marvellous. <clears throat> My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Okay, so this is um, Paul writing. Um, Barnabas uh, accompanies Paul on, it, on the very first missionary mission that um, Paul goes on. And also when there's, um, there's this, you remember there's a famine in the early church and Paul makes a collection among the churches to buy food. For Christians, Barnabas accompanies Paul on that journey. Uh, thereafter, which they go on the first missionary journey, and on the first missionary journey, Mark goes with Paul uh, and Barnabas as well. Uh, Barnabas is cousin um, of Mark. Uh, so Acts uh, twelve twenty five. Marvelous. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Yeah, uh, and some translations, if you were reading along, might have to Jerusalem and some have from, because there's a difference in the manuscript tradition whether it's from or to there. Um, it's John Mark because, as with many other characters in the, in the Bible, um, people had their Jewish name and their Greek name. So, uh, John is basically the transliteration of his Jewish name, uh, which should have been Yohan know, or something. And Mark is his Greek name. Uh, so it's not that he had, like, first name John and surname Mark, or he had a double-barrelled name. So, like, people tended to have two names because you're moving in this sort of multilingual, multicultural Roman world. Um, Uh, Acts 13.5 When they arrived at Salamis, 
they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Right, so that's John with Paul and Barnabas on their first mission as their helper. Um, so if uh, Peter is released uh, from prison about AD 42, and I think Mark probably goes with him to Rome and stays there for a while, and he's back around then going on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas uh, around 47 to 48. Uh, so he could have been in, in Rome from sort of 42 to 46, 47. Then he comes back uh, to Jerusalem area and hooks up with uh, Paul and Barnabas going on a mission. Um, Acts 15.39 is an interesting clue that we'll pick up later. Acts 15.39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. We have a little bit more of the context around there. Uh, do you want me to read from 36? That might be. Okay, so sometime later Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed from Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Right, so having been on one missionary <coughs> journey, we found out later on that there's this disagreement between Barnabas and Paul over Mark, because Mark had left them high and dry partway through the first mission. And scholars, as they will, have speculated on why did Mark leave them? Um, why does Barnabas stick up for him later and is prepared to go missioning with him and Paul's dissatisfied and, and not? Well, you know, who, who knows? But... My suspicion, for what it's worth, is that he may have heard that Peter was back in Jerusalem. Um, Herod um, dies, uh, the Herod who had imprisoned Peter, dies in about AD 44. Uh, so it's you know, relatively safe for Peter to be back there. We know that Peter was back in Jerusalem by 48-49 for the, for the church first church council of Jerusalem uh, so I, th I think that Mark went to Rome with, with Peter maybe stayed on there a little bit after Peter left Rome that could have precipitated people saying here we've, we've just lost our main oral witness to the, these Jesus stories that he's been telling, can you write them down? Or indeed, when a bit later on, Mark ends up back in Jerusalem and hooking up with Paul and Barnabas to go on a mission as their assistant, 
again, like, oh, Peter used to tell this story about Jesus. Let me tell them that story about Jesus. That'll be useful for doing doing the mission. Oh, I'll write. I'll, I'm, a, I'm a scribe. I'll write them down. I've been writing down all these stories that Peter's been telling. If I put them all together, I could publish a book about this about Jesus. Oh, yeah. oh I've, I've just heard that Peter now is back in Jerusalem. Um, I want to go and show Peter this book that I'm writing and get him to say, yes, it's all right for me to publish the stories that he's been telling. And, you know, like, give, let him give me his, his authority, his imprature for doing that. Um, that would give him a reason for going, for, for leaving something that he would think was important to leave for, um, giving him the benefit of the doubt. Um, which is why Barnabas is quite happy with him later, but, but you know, Paul doesn't quite see it that way. Um, maybe, maybe. <laughs> so we have a few other references. Um, Paul obviously gets over his his dissatisfaction with Mark later on because we have reference from Philemon 24. There's only one chapter. So Philemon 24 and 2 Timothy 4.11. Got me to do Philemon. Thank you. Yeah. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Sorry, send you greetings. Yeah. Yeah. And so do Mark, etc. And then 2... 2 Timothy, Timothy 4, 11. Um, sorry, 4... Verse 11. 11. Yeah. I did find it. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Oh yeah, so even though Paul and Barnabas has had this falling out about John Mark... Later on in Paul's ministry, he, he seems to have um, got over this and is calling Mark a fellow worker and saying he's useful to me in my ministry and so on. So they'd obviously patched it up later on, which is, which is nice to know. Um, talking about the relationship between Paul and Barnabas and Mark, but now the relationship between Peter and Mark. So 1 Peter 5.13... I can do that as well if you want. Yeah, if you've got it, she who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Yeah. So Babylon would have been a way of referring to Rome. And Peter there is, is talk, talking about Mark as his son. Now, probably not his literal son. People think it probably means Mark had become a Christian under Peter's influence that he was his spiritual son he calls him my, my son Mark now one detail in the gospel a, a traditional way of, of reading this detail do you know the detail about the young man who flees away naked from the garden of Gethsemane in uh, Mark 14 51-ish can I read it? yes please a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Oh, yeah. So the first streaker in... First, yes, right. <laughs> Streaking is biblical. <laughs> he was escaping and he grabbed his clothes. He managed to wriggle out of it like some Jackie Chan move or something. I don't know. Um, it's a very odd little detail. <laughs> that 
suddenly included there. And it, the traditional reading of this has been that this is John Mark talking about himself. It would, he didn't mention yourself by, by name uh, as the writer. He's being humbled that he is including that he was involved in this incident. Uh, and that is often traditionally thought to be Mark putting in a reference to himself being there. So although he wasn't, he's not thought to be an eyewitness to the general ministry of Jesus, he was around in Jerusalem at the same time and was an eyewitness particularly to this uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane uh, episode. And that's about it, as far as um, the biblical uh, references to, to Mark go. So you can see why you wouldn't really pick him to make up as an author of, of one of the Gospels. It's like, yeah, let's say that they, the streaker that really annoyed Paul is the author of this Gospel. That'll endear it to people. Like, what? Well, essentially, we don't really know where Mark came from. But we know he was around. Yeah. But we don't know when he came on the scene, who he was with, other than we know who he was with at some point, but we don't know. That's right. We just get these little yeah, snippets. snippets of where his, his, his mum clearly lived in, in Jerusalem. So he probably was born and raised in Jerusalem. It seems like his dad wasn't around from a fairly young age, for whatever reason. Probably that he's dead. Um, he, he then seems to, perhaps Peter was like a sort of father figure to him. And, and it seems to be under Peter's influence that he became a, a Christian. He was obviously good at uh, writing, maybe a, a scribe, better at Greek, better at translating from Aramaic to Greek, something like this. He, uh, perhaps he went with Peter to Rome when Peter has escaped prison. Uh, he then, later on, we see that he's back around with, with Barnabas and Paul going on missionary journeys around Jerusalem and Antioch places. Um, he causes eruption by suddenly leaving them. Who knows why, but maybe it's something to do with the, the gospel writing hooking up with Peter again, who we know was back in Jerusalem for the Council of Jerusalem by AD 49, after Herod, who'd imprisoned him, was dead. Um, so perhaps he'd been cobbling together these preaching stories from Peter and he marries it with this early Jewish church passion story to form Mark's gospel. Um, after the Council of Jerusalem probably goes back to Rome with Peter who has now had a chance to read the material that he's been putting together and says yes you can publish this and let it be known that you know I say that that's this is um, pucker as it were and there's an interesting historical detail um, that the emp there's rioting in Rome in AD 49 amongst the Jews we're told, at the instigation of one Crestus, um, I think it's Tacitus says this, and it's generally thought that this is a, uh, you know, a sort of mispronunciation of the name Christ, that there's writing amongst Jews because of Christ, of course, who is dead, but about Christ. My, again, my suspicion is, what if Peter publishing the Gospel of Mark in Rome causes rioting amongst the Jewish community in Rome in AD 49 and the emperor sees this, oh, these Jews all kicking off amongst stuff about these, but just kick them out just, you know, get rid of them more trouble than they're worth and that ties in 
with this uh, reference to, to writing from, from uh, I think it's Tacitus. Um, Pete May, I, I mentioned this theory to Pete May, who, you know, he's got his new book out. Um, he, 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 he suddenly came back to me about a week later saying, I was thinking about that, I was up all night, I've done some research, I've added a new chapter to the book. And he went away and researched this. Uh, found that um, Bruce Winter had written a, a paper some years ago about the, the early movements of, of Peter, and um, he, he may points out that um, Paul uh, talks about uh, not wanting to build on another man's fa another person's foundation when he's spreading the gospel. He sees himself as called to preach to the Gentiles, and you know Peter was would be preaching to the Jews and so on, but he when writing to the Romans, he sort of he knows all of them, but he's saying, I, I didn't want to lay on, preach on, on the foundation that someone else had laid. I want to be laying my own foundation places, not building on someone else's, because there's already stuff going on there. Kind of. Well, if that is, presumably Peter laid the foundation for the church in Rome, um... He had to have done that by the time that Paul is is writing about this, not wanting to build on someone else's foundation. Um, and if Peter is laying you know, the, the foundation of the church in Rome, then it's entirely plausible that the that the gospel that is associated with him um, goes along uh, with that. Um, as part of his sort of missionary efforts and so on. Peter's book all about Mark. Sorry, is, is Peter's book Peter May's book? No, Mark. well, there's um, he just he, he added this chapter about what happens to to Peter in, in the early church, trying to piece together the clues of Peter's movements and picking up on on my argument that that says it's 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 entirely plausible, it sort of fits with the known facts at least, it's sort of consistent with theory to, to say that Mark was put together and written that early. Um, generally, I mean, the atheist Matthew Neal, to give us a, a bookend of this, uh, suggests that Mark's gospel was written almost two generations after Jesus' death, because he's being sceptical about it. Uh, Mark is generally dated, has been dated between sort of 55 and up to 70 AD. Um, a number of scholars push, pushed it towards the early, John Robinson, although being liberal, pushed it fairly early. Um, with J. Warner Wallace, who says, you know, the late 40s or early 50s, I, I think, yeah, it does seem to sort of fit the circumstances of what we know about the movements of Peter and of John. Mark, um, that he could very well have have published the Gospels as early as as forty nine. Um, there's even a uh, an atheist called uh, John uh, Crossley. He's a member of the Jesus Seminar. Who's, who's an atheist? Did his PhD thesis on Mark and says for various reasons that he he think it could have been published in like between thirty five and forty five. Um, so it's it's entirely possible to find you know atheists saying actually it could be a lot earlier than this sort of fifty five to seventy that has been a sort of general agreement upon for for a while. 
the general drift of dating the Gospels has been earlier and earlier over over time. When we're talking about Mark being published, is it the entirety of Mark as we know it in one single document? Yeah. Or has it, or could it have been in multiple bits that he's had, Serial. and someone a bit later, maybe as 55, 70, has actually put them together as one? Or um, it's possible, so far as the, the the manuscript evidence goes. Um, what I'm suggesting certainly ties in with the idea that that and I think this is true of the Gospels in general. You don't get the Gospel writer sort of sitting down and just okay, so now write my the Gospel and then publish it. That's right. You go through a process of cobbling it together, of making doing a first draft, of revising it, of of or adding another bit in. Of this is sort of how stuff is is written, and it and things may go through a few. So for all intents and purposes, yeah. what you're talking about there is yeah. basically what you've got here. Yes. So that I'm suggesting that it was he was beginning to write it as early as sort of 42, 43 maybe, you know. But that the gospel as we have it, barring the long ending, which we'll talk about in a minute, was published 49. Yeah. Um, Alexander and Rufus... Uh, Again, minor minor characters, but of interest mentioned in Mark, uh, Mark fifteen twenty, and, and a, a sign of it being fairly early as as well. Mark just assumes it's clear that some of his audience are going to recognise the names uh, Alexander and Rufus as the sons of Simon of Cyrene. Um, Simon of Cyrene is the one who's forced to, ca- to carry um, Jesus's cross when he stumbles on the way to crucifixion. And evidently Simon of Sinai had two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who were known within the early church, presumably because they were members of the early church. Um, so Mark 15, uh, 21, talks about that. Uh, but then it's, there are cross-references here. So Matthew 27, 32, Luke 32, 26, uh, talk about Simon of Cyrene carrying the, the crossbeam. Uh, but Mark has this detail about him having two sons called Alexander and Rufus. Now, interesting bit of archaeology. In 1941, Eliezer Suknik, Israeli archaeologist, he discovers a tomb in the Kedron Valley, east of Jerusalem. He dates it with the pottery and so on to to the first century AD. The tomb contains 11 bone boxes, ossuaries, where you rebury the bones after a while, people in, which they only did before the fall of Jerusalem in 70. There are 12 names in 15 inscriptions. Uh, some of those names are particularly common names in Cyrenicia. And one of the inscriptions on one of these ossuaries says, Alexandros, son of Simon. And on the lid, there's an inscription bearing the name of Alexandros in Greek, and then there's a Hebrew, so there's Greek, and there's a Hebrew set of letters, which seems to be misspelt because basically it's gibberish. But it's very close <laughs> to the Hebrew for Cy- Cyrenian. But someone wasn't very good at spelling, basically. Uh, so it's Tom Power's comments in uh, Biblical Archaeology Review considering how uncommon the name Alexander was, noting that the Osiris inscription lists him in the same relationship to Simon as the New Testament does, and recall that the burial cave 
contains the remains of people from Cyrenicia, the chances that Simon on the Ossery refers to the Simon of Cyrene mentioned in the Gospel seems quite likely. Um, so you get just this off-handed reference uh, in Mark that he expects people to know about Simon of Cyrene with sons Alexander and Rufus and uh, then we find the ossuary of Alexander son of Simon from Cyrene from the first century so it's probably him So this is the, the theory I was talking about, about the dating and the writing. I've imposed it on the timeline of the life of the Apostle here. Uh, so you see as we go through the years, Peter going to Rome in 42 there. Maybe Peter returning to Jerusalem after the death of Herod. Mark perhaps starting to draft the Gospel in Rome. Coming back to Jerusalem and joining up with Paul and Barnabas but leaving them partway through their first missionary journey, being with Peter at the Council of Jerusalem, coming back with him to Rome, publishing the Gospel uh, in 49, and inadvertently getting the Jews kicked out of, of uh, Rome. So you've probably seen me show the, these charts before, just the standard. Here's uh, Mark. If Mark was written 49, that would put the time gap between the things he's talking about and when he's writing about them as one of the shortest time gaps of any ancient sort of historical biographical reporting that we have. I mean, even if it was written sort of in the 50s to the 70s, it's doing quite well by the standards of ancient history in terms of, well, how long after is he having to remember all this stuff? But if it is 49, it's very good. And you can see for the other gospel, here's Luke, Matthew and John up here. But they're all doing better than Tacitus and Herodotus and Suetonius and Josephus and so on. Uh, in terms of piecing together what was originally written from all the remaining actual manuscripts that we have, again, this is the gap between when someone originally wrote their document and the actual earliest copy that we have of that document. Um, so you see for the Gospels that gap is about 300 years till you have complete copies of books from the Bible or the New Testament from when they wrote it. And that sounds like a long time until you compare it to other works of ancient history and the next closest is the works of Homer and then Pliny the Younger and Pliny uh, Tacitus and the so top on. One? Sorry? What's the top one? Uh, oh, this is uh, EGF's uh, Earliest Gospel Fragments. Um, so little bits of papyrus that have like a couple of verses from say John's Gospel and so John Ryland's recognisably yeah, from the Gospels, but it's not even a whole page, whole page. you know. Yeah. So, yeah, you get them quite early. And the interesting thing, talking about Marx, and it's not been published yet, and there's a lot of speculation in, uh, about it, so we'll have to really wait until there's proper publication on it. 
But there, there is heard tell, and I've heard tell from some reputable biblical scholars in America, uh, there's a, a recent discovery of a fragment of Mark's Gospel from the first century. Um, which they've, they've said dates to the, say, the 90s of the first century, which, if that does turn out to be correct, would be the, the earliest bit of New Testament that we've got yet, by some decades. Uh, and it's from Mark, interestingly. I don't know what bit of Mark yet, because they haven't published it. Uh, but uh, keep an eye on that. There have been some sort of news stories about it and things, but one must await confirmation. Uh, And who could resist, just a reminder about the, the number of manuscripts that you are. So the next closest Homer, we've, we've found a lot of phones of Homer recently. That number for Homer used to be in the sort of 900s a couple of decades ago. Now we've got about 2,300 different manuscript bits and bobs of Homer. Um, still doesn't compare very well with the round about 5,680 bits and bobs <laughs> of the New Testament from which you uh, compile what the original was saying. So we've got a lot more data to go on so we can be much more sure that what we've got represented as Mark in our Bibles is accurate. Apart from <laughs> the long ending of Mark so the two earliest complete Greek copies and all of the earliest the translations of Mark's Gospel end at Mark 16, verse 8. And if you look at your translation, you will probably find a footnote or a bracketing or a sort of spacing mm -hmm. after verse 8. That will indicate to you that what follows is not in the earliest manuscripts. And again... The scholars debate whether there was a longer ending that has been lost or whether it, the original ended at verse 8 rather apparently rather abruptly but take note anyone who wants to go and join one of the snake handling churches in America <laughs> that the stuff about uh, Christians handling snakes and uh, not dying from their venomous bites is after verse 8 of the end of Mark and was not in the original. Its later scribes have, have gone, oh, that seems a bit abrupt. What about all that stuff about Jesus sending out the apostles to preach the word and so on? We need to make up a proper ending. And they sort of summarise information from the other Gospels. And somehow this snake handling thing works its way in there as well. But uh, that is not as far as we can tell, what Mark wrote. <laughs> We're not having a practical snake handling. Then. No practical snake handling. You know. I didn't prepare the snakes, so... Yeah. <laughs> there is a bit about drinking deadly poison, though, so... Yeah, that's it. Drinking deadly poison. That's what you can coffee. coffee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think yeah, it comes because there's, a, there's an incident with Paul, isn't there, where he gets bitten but doesn't, doesn't die. One of his missionary journeys. But, uh... Who was it who was supposed to get rid of snakes out of Ireland? Was that Patrick? Patrick. Patrick. Mm. Yes, yeah, there you go, yeah. It's Patrick and the snakes. Yeah.